week four of our series we're calling Christianity's Greatest Questions. And we've been dealing with various issues, things that I went through trying to understand the faith coming from from, uh, an unbelieving background to trying to grab hold of the things of God. And so we've covered a whole bunch of topics. Can I trust the Bible? Last week, science versus religion. And this week, we're going to talk about the problem of evil. If God is so good and he's in charge of this, how come so many bad things happen? That's what we're going to talk about today. So this is basically the opposite topic of what we did last time. So last time we were talking about science versus religion, and it's looking at this world. When we look at this world, either through an organized way or just by gazing at the world, we can see the hand of God. It's called the design argument. You can look at the beauty of this world, the complexity of this world, the purposefulness of this world, and you can see the hand of God. That's Romans 1.20 says this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So it's saying here that we can look at the world, the complexity of it, the beauty of it, and we can see the qualities of God in what has been created. The problem of evil is basically taking the same evidence, looking at this world, and instead saying, wow, this is messed up. This world is full of evil and pain and hardship and destruction. So how can there be a good God that's behind this? So the the simple logic of the problem of evil is this. God is perfect. Premise number one. God made this. Premise number two. Conclusion. This is perfect. If God is perfect and he made this, he's going to make something perfect. However, when we look at this world, how many people would say this world is perfect, completely good in every way, nothing needs to change, not messed up at all. Is this world messed up? Oh, yeah. Okay, so it's not perfect. So then one of our two premises must be wrong. Either God's not perfect or he didn't make this, right? That's the problem of evil, the argument from evil. How do we deal with this question? It's something that people have dealt with on a heart level and on an intellectual level. So today we're going to look at two responses to this question from logic and two responses to this question from the Bible. So two biblical responses, two logic responses. We'll start with the logic responses and then we'll go to the biblical responses. So response number one, we aren't yet at the finished product. It's not done yet. So if we're going to say that God is perfect, he made this, so this should be perfect, we need to recognize that we're not at the end product yet. So for example, if you need to go to the doctor and have surgery, let's say you need your knee replaced or something like that, and you, you know, you're like, oh, my, my knee doesn't work right. The doctor says, okay, I can help you. I can make your knee work. And you don't really understand the process. You know, you just know there's some really cool people that say they can help. So in the process of helping, first thing they do is they gas you into unconsciousness. Then 
They take knives and like chisels and they cut you apart and start bashing at stuff. And if you were to see that in the middle of the process, it would be like, you are not helping. I thought you were going to help. What is wrong with you? You know, and it would look very destructive, very, very bad. But we all know, since we have the the context of understanding, you know, what a knee replacement is, that it's going to get worse before it gets better. But it's the best thing to do. You know, a simple, more pleasant, probably should have started with this one, more pleasant uh, thing would be like, you're going to bake a cake. You know what I mean? You mix all the ingredients together and, uh, you know, it's sort of like that. You put it in the oven. If you took it out in half the time that it was supposed to be in there and then you try to frost it, it's it's not going to work. You know, it's, it's just a mess. So you have to get to the finished product. And the reality is, is that we are not at the finished product. We are in the process. And so the finished product is described in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. So let's take a look at this, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. We are currently in the time that's described here as the old order of things, the time when there are tears, when there is death, when there is mourning and crying and pain, we exist in that order of things. And it's part of the process to get to the finished product, the finished product, the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal kingdom of God is a place that is, is going to be inhabited by Creative, intelligent, free-willed beings who need to have some perspective, who need to understand the difference between God and the devil, between good and evil, between right and wrong, so that we can live in this kingdom and not destroy it. So we need this perspective. So basically, this first logical response that creation isn't finished solves the logical problem. You know, God is perfect. God made this heaven is perfect. Okay. That's not a problem. God is making heaven. This is just part of the process to get there. So it isn't finished. Logical response. Number two is this, and here's the warning, big warning now. This will disagree with some modern theology. Are you ready? Feeling good? I usually try to tell a joke before I do something like this. But here's the important thing to recognize. Logical response number two, there are more influencers in this world than just God. God is not the only influence in your life. God is not the only influence in this world. There are more influencers in this world than just God. Let's read some scriptures. 
First, Satan is real. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 10 and 11. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. So let me give you a context on this verse. So the Corinthian church was dealing with some major dysfunction and there were people that needed to be corrected. And so when they were rebuked, they repented and then they needed to be restored. So that's the system. Somebody's messing up really bad. You correct them, then they re- repent and then they are restored. So that's the system that how it's supposed to work scripturally. And so that's where they are. The forgiveness has happened. The repentance has happened. And so there we go. Now, verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So correction happened. Repentance happened. Now it was time for forgiveness and restoration. And Paul is saying, grant that forgiveness so that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So we learn a few things. Satan's trying to outwit us by scheming. Who's been around longer, you or Satan? He's got lots, lots more information than you do. He's he's pretty smart, and he's been messing with people for a long, long time. And so he can mess with us and kind of confuse us and cause us problems. And what's the scheme that's being talked about here in second Corinthians chapter two? Well, it's the scheme of trying to break apart the body of Christ, trying to break the, the group of believers apart. Somebody does something wrong. They're corrected. And then they, that relationship stays broken is the scheme of the devil to stop forgiveness from happening so that there is a break in the body of Christ, a fracturing in, the kingdom of God. And that's what Satan's trying to do. Drive people away from each other who should be working together for the kingdom of God. He's scheming against that, trying to maintain offense, trying to maintain unforgiveness. But instead we are to forgive because we don't want to be outwitted by Satan and fall into that trap because we're not unaware of his schemes. We need to stand together one body for Christ, not driven apart by offense and unforgiveness. So that's Described here is a scheme of the devil. Satan is having some influence trying to drive people apart. That's not from God. That's from Satan. Let's go to Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. It says this, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's a bit of figurative language. What it means is if you've got anger in your heart, deal with it. Don't just let it go. You know, if something bad happens three minutes before the sun goes down, you know, just relax. You can have some extra time. But here's the deal. Don't let that anger just sit and simmer and shape the way that you think and the way that you feel because that will give the devil a foothold, and he'll be able then to 
push that easy button in your life and affect what you're going to do, how you're going to think, how you see people. It will give the devil a foothold. That devil's foothold is not from God. We are warned in the scriptures to not give the devil a foothold because it will give Satan an influence over us that we don't want him to have. We want God to have influence over us. But if we let our anger fester and we don't deal with it, that will give the devil a foothold. And I got to tell you, this one I fell for. This one was one that the devil got a foothold in on me through anger. This can happen. We don't want to give the devil a foothold. The devil's foothold is not from God. It's an influence in this world that is not from God. First Peter 5, 8 and 9 says this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So the the family of believers all around the world is being attacked by the enemy. There's persecution, there's difficulties, there's hardships. And the, the reality is that we need to stand firm against the devil because he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's not from God. That's an influence in this world, an influence of destruction, of pain, of hurt, stealing, killing, and destroying. That's not from God. And then 2 Timothy chapter 2. I could have read a whole bunch more, but we're going to stick with four because I feel like it's very important for us to understand that there are things going on in this world that are not from God. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Hallelujah. Got to read that one. You got to read that one in the uh, Christianity's Greatest Questions thing because you can get caught up in just arguing for argument's sake, and that's a big problem because, you know, they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So the devil is vying for the hearts and the minds and the lives of people just like God is. And people can fall into the trap of the devil, and then the devil will take them captive to do his will for their life. You know, God has a will for you, a plan for your life, both in who you are to be, in your character, in your heart, and the things you are to do. But Satan has a plan and a will for your life as well. And you need to resist the devil, not fall into the trap. But here's the deal. If you fall into the trap, that trap's not from God. You'll do things that aren't from God. And we need to recognize the fact that there are things going on all over this planet that are not from God. So this transitions us from influence away from God, number one, which is Satan. And the second one is people who do bad things. People have been taken captive to do the will of the enemy. So there is Satan is real, but also people sin. People do bad things. Now, Satan can, can lead you into sin, but you can do sin just on your own. You don't need demonic influence to do sin. You can do that yourself. 
And that will hurt people. That's not from God. God has given us commandments and guidance to not do things like that because he knows it's going to bring pain and hurt into this world. And so when we disobey the commandments of God, when we do things apart from the will of God, then that is not an influence from God. It's from our own sin. And so that brings evil and darkness into this world as well. And then there's the natural evil that is part of the curse. You know, Adam and Eve sinned against God and there was a separation, a break that happened there and the earth changed. And now, you know, like gardening is a lot harder than it used to be and things like that. But also there's natural disasters and and difficult things that happen. And Jesus deals with this in Luke chapter 13. And here's what he has to say there. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So these are people who are offering uh, some kind of animal sacrifice and the government decides to kill them too and just make them part of it. So that's a harsh, harsh situation. There's some kind of tremendous religious persecution going on there. So they're mentioning that to Jesus. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. See, look, they weren't being judged by God because of some horrible sin they committed. It just happened to them. It's just part of the evil world, but you better get straight. You better get right with God because we need to get right with God or, or we will perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them. So apparently there was a tower that just fell over and and killed 18 people. Now, is this God's judgment on those 18 because they were worse than everybody else? Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. An accident. Tower falls over. It wasn't the 18 that got killed's fault. They weren't worse than anybody else. But the reality is that we need Jesus to get out of this thing without being condemned, but brought into everlasting life. All of us need the the rescuing from God and the salvation from God. So when we see the darkness of this world, we should run to God through that. So there's just things like towers falling over. There's accidents. There's just natural evil. There's the sin of people and there's the work of Satan in this world. So there's lots of stuff going on that isn't from God. Now God could change all of that. But again, this is part of baking the cake. This is part of giving us perspective. I believe it's very important for us to go into the, the eternal kingdom of God and every moment of Every day, be thankful that God is in charge of this because we know what it's like when we're in charge. We know what it's like when there are evil forces at play. We know what it's like when you can't trust your health or just the safety of the world. We know what that's like, but that order of things will pass away and we'll be able to be in the goodness of God for eternity and we will be thankful for forever. It won't wear off after living through this. So the second logical argument, you know, God is perfect. He made this. This should be perfect. Well, some stuff here he didn't make. He didn't make that evil that happened to you. Somebody else did that. There are influencers in this world that are not God. All right. That was two 
responses from logic. Let's look at two responses from the Bible. The oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. It was written from what we understand prior to even the book of Genesis. So it's from the time of the patriarchs from way back when, of course, Genesis talks about creation, things that happened before the events in the book of Job. But this is an ancient, ancient, ancient book, the book of Job. And it's basically the problem of evil. What happened to this guy named Job? Why did something bad happen to him? Let's get a context and an understanding of the book. Job chapter 1. One through three in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Good guy or bad guy? Good guy. Verse two, he had seven sons and three daughters and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So competent or incompetent, competent, rich or poor. He's a great guy. He's good at what he does. And he is at the top of his game. He's got everything going for him. All right. Jump to verse six. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. So Satan shows up with the angels and uh, God's like, what are you doing here? Where'd you come from? I was just walking around on the earth, you know, checking some things out prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom I may devour. Verse eight. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? If you've been down walking around down there, I bet you saw somebody that's pretty awesome. You know, loves what's good, shuns evil. He's competent. Look at what he's been able to do. He's got like thousands of animals. He's just doing really, really well. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. He's saying, how easy is it for Job to love you? His life is really, really good. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So here we see a very, very clear understanding of what Satan is trying to do. We, if you know the story of Job, we'll get to this in just a second. Really, really bad things happen to him. And the, the purpose behind it was Satan trying to drive a wedge between Job and God, trying to hurt Job so that then he would get mad at God and he would run from God. So he's trying to get Job to curse God to his face. Verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, very well, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So this hedge of protection, which Satan was talking about, is somehow removed. And Satan is given access to Job's life. He goes in, kills all his kids, ruins his business. He's in poverty, but he himself is not sick, not afflicted. And then Satan and God have another conversation and Job is doing well. He's still honoring God and Satan is like, yeah, but of course he can do that. He's physically fine. So we jump to chapter two, verse seven. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. So now Satan's given access to ruin him physically, take his health away from him. He's in this horrible situation. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. So he's been reduced from the greatest man in the East, from a man who loves God, shuns evil, has got a fantastic business going. Everything is working well for him. Now he's sitting in a pile of of ashes scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery. This would be kind of a, a harsh change. And then he doesn't have a very supportive home life either. Verse nine, his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Sometimes you need your spouse to give you some encouragement. Just doesn't work out that way. So Job is brought into this terrible situation Then we get 40 more chapters of bad counsel. (laughs) And then Job chapter 42. Let's look at how this all resolves. Job 42 verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former. So he lasted through this harsh time. And then God restores him. He had 14,000 sheep. 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. So double what he had before. Verse 13, he also had seven sons and three daughters. So his family was restored. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hepuch, I think. Nowhere in the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man and full of years. So we have Job prospering, Job suffering, and Job prospering again. What are the lessons we can learn from the book of Job? Just to be real simple, the the lesson you don't want to learn, which so many people think is the message of the book of Job, is you just never know when God's going to ruin your life. That is not the message from the book of Job. Here are three important lessons from the book of Job. The first one, God is good and the devil is bad. When God was blessing Job, his life was good. When the devil had access to him, his life was bad. When God then was blessing Job, his life was good. So God is good. The devil is bad. And then Satan was trying to drive a wedge between Job and God through suffering. So when you're going through something harsh, make sure to remember God is good. The devil is bad. Important thing. Number two, even if you are innocent, Satan can gain access to your life. In fact, he prefers that. He would rather hurt a beautiful 18-month-old child because he knows if he hurts that child, he can take out a bunch of other people too. He would rather hurt someone innocent than someone who's, you know, deserves it. So even if you're innocent, Satan can gain access to your life. And so we need to learn how to defend ourselves against the enemy. We'll do a series on that starting in February. So hang around for that. And then lesson number three from Job, when you are suffering, don't insult the character of God. Remember the scheme of the devil. Here's how it works. Satan will hurt you or you'll have just been hurt in this world by the sin of other people or natural processes. You know, the tower falls on you, that sort of thing. And then 
Satan will whisper in your ear, I can't believe God did that to you. He must not really like you very much. He, I don't, in fact, he's not good to you at all, is he? He'll whisper that in your ear. Look at how bad God is treating you. He's not taking care of you. You can't trust him. You know what? Why don't you just come with me? So Satan will hurt you, blame it on God, and then try to get you to leave God and go with him. That's what he did to Job. He's still doing that today. So don't fall for that scheme of the devil. Now, I want to read Luke 22 because we see this same dynamic in New Testament times. Luke 22, 31 and 32, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, Simon, Simon, that's Simon Peter, you know, Peter, one of the 12, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. So Jesus is telling Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Does this sound like Job? This is thousands of years later. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So if you know the story, Peter is told by Jesus, you're going to deny me three times. Peter says, no, I'm not. And yet he still does, but he does come back. So there's spiritual forces at play that are more powerful than us. And it's hard to understand, but Satan is still gaining access to people like Peter and trying to turn him, asking to sift him as wheat. And yet Jesus is interceding for Simon and bringing him out of it. So we need God's help through this. And this is something that still happens. Again, 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and if so remind your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, 8, how do you think Peter knows that? Because Satan asked to sift him as wheat. He's experienced it. And so he warns us not to get pulled into that lie. All right, so biblical response to the problem of evil. The first one is Job. And again, the lessons from Job, God is good, the devil is bad. Even if you're innocent, Satan can gain access to your life. So we need to learn how to resist. And then when you're suffering, don't insult the character of God. Satan will try to drive a wedge between you and God through suffering. Get you to blame God and turn away from him. Instead, when you suffer, you run to your savior. You run to your deliverer. You run to your comforter. You run to Jesus when you are hurting. Don't believe the lie and run away. Run to your helper. I said there were two biblical responses. And this next biblical response, I think, is very powerful. Because the logic doesn't necessarily hit the heart. But the pain hits the heart. And so we need something to grab hold of that's going to reach into our heart. And so here's the second biblical response to evil. Matthew 27 starting in verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. 
Then they led him away to crucify him. You're not the only one that's seen the evil of this world. The baby in the manger experienced the evil of this world. We don't serve a God who watches us suffer and cheers for us from a distance. We serve a God that came here and felt betrayal, felt scourging, felt nails in his hands and his feet, who felt death, a terrible death, wrongly accused, harshly treated, suffering from the evil in this world and experiencing a separation from his father as he took the sins of the world upon him. This is God's answer to the problem of evil. Yes, it's hard for you. Yes, this life is harsh and cruel, but Jesus came here too to experience the harshness and the cruelty of this world so that he could take us by the hand and bring us through it. Jesus sacrificed and he died and he did that for you. But Jesus rose again. Jesus triumphed over death and you can have new life in Christ as well. So now we choose who we want to follow. Do we let the darkness of this world separate us from God or do we follow Christ in the midst of the harshness? This is the decision we have to make. Will we trust God in our suffering or will we let that suffering separate us from God and take us away into the lies of the enemy? Jesus came here and he was part of experiencing the evil in this world in ways we can't understand. And it's all part of God's great plan, but it was worth it. And when we continue with God through the suffering, it's worth it. But let's go before the Lord along these lines. So pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so good. Thank you for never leaving us or forsaking us. Thank you, Lord, that in the midst of the pain and the suffering, the disillusionment and the hurt that we feel that you are with us, that we never weep alone, but you weep with us. Lord, I pray for each one here that when we suffer, that we would run to you, that we wouldn't believe the lie that the enemy would tell us that would drive us away from you, that would cause us to question your character, that would cause us to question your love, that would cause us to walk away from you. But instead of believing those lies, that we would run to you, knowing that you love us, that you will see us through this hardship and this life, and you will bring us to a place, a new order of things that is so much better than this that we will look back only with thankfulness, knowing that you have given us something so wonderful, so beautiful, so eternal, that whatever we needed to do to get there was worth it. Lord, I pray your peace would be upon us in the midst of the storm. I pray that your joy would give us strength in the midst of the trial. And Lord, that we would know your love to its fullness so that we can walk through this, this life seeing and trusting in the next. Bless us in that way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.